0: DHTV, the program of Save the Nation. I'm David Flint, and I'm delighted to say that our guest is Peter Jennings, who's an expert in matters of defence and national security. Welcome, Peter.
1: David, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be talking with you.
0: Good. You've had an extraordinary career. You've had leading positions in... Uh, defence and national security in the Australian public service. You've been the uh, executive director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. You received uh, an AO from the Australian government and uh, you've been made a knight of the French Legion of Honour and you've held a commendation from the Japanese Empire and you have a regular column in the Australian, which I'm sure is read with great interest both uh, in Australia and internationally. So welcome and uh, uh, we're looking forward to your advice on the security and defence of Australia. Peter. Thanks,
1: David. Uh, when you say all those things, it feels somehow like you're describing someone other than me, but <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess that is me. You're <laughs> and, a modest uh, so man.
0: Modest. That's because you're modest. <laughs> which is a which is a virtue as you know but peter do tell us uh, what what should we Australians be thinking about in the relation to the security of this country
1: well in in the 30 or 40 years that i've been closely watching in international security david i i think um, without question, the, the big strategic challenge that Australia faces today uh, comes from China. Uh, and, and I guess that won't be a, a surprise to your viewers, but what what may be surprising um, is the speed with which this change has been brought about. Um, you know, in my defence career, uh, certainly at senior levels, the, the vast bulk of my time was, was taken up with our military operations in Iraq um, and Afghanistan, uh, East East Timor to to some extent as well. Um, And so that was a period where, uh, you know, know, Australia was very much focused on security in the Middle East, on the threat, which was a real threat of uh, terrorism. Uh, But in the last decade, um, the reality of um, security in our region has has come home uh, to be the dominating strategic Preoccupation, and and it has to do with the growth of Chinese military power, which has been incredibly fast, and the extension of that power through um, uh, China's attempts to become a more dominating uh, country in Southeast Asia and to extend that role into the Pacific, um, into the Indian Ocean, r- really, really globally. Uh, and, and so, for me. Um, That's what I worry about now, is uh, what um, an aggressive, highly nationalistic, uh, militarising China means for the security of the region and, of course, what that means uh, for Australia's security. That's the number one issue, I think.
0: Does this also affect all of our allies?
1: Yes, because uh, China is emerging as a global superpower. Um, It's it's really the only country which has the capacity to challenge um, the strategic order which has been underwritten by the United States since the end of the the Second World War. Uh, And I think it's important to say that, you know, China's ambitions go much further than uh, Xi Jinping's very publicly stated objective to want to put Taiwan under uh, the control of the Chinese Communist Party, you know, Taiwan is an island, 160 kilometres off the Chinese coast. Um, the design of the Chinese military is now intended to take the People's Liberation Army much further than that. And so, I think you can have a reasonable debate about is China intent on becoming a dominating power in the Indo-Pacific, or does it want to be a, a globally influential power, uh, in some respects, outranking out the United States. I, 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 well, I think it's both of those things. And so China is now the central strategic preoccupation of the US, notwithstanding that there's, you know, a major war in, in Europe. Uh, and, and it certainly concerns countries um, close to Australia, close in a cooperation sense, like uh, Japan, uh, like South Korea, the countries of Southeast Asia. So it's not just our problem by any means. Um, uh, the whole of the region I think worries about the direction that Xi Jinping is setting for, for China.
0: During most of my life, certainly after the Second World War, I, I do remember the Second World War, but after that the, the principal fear seemed to be about the Soviet Union, Russia today. Is, is Russia no longer the, the major threat that she once was? Well, uh, Russia still possesses
1: um, a, a formidable n- nuclear arsenal uh, and the capacity to put those weapons onto intercontinental ballistic missiles. So uh, in, in no sense should we dismiss Russia I, I think it's also worth talking, uh, David uh, sometime uh, about the, the partnership that's re-emerged between Russia and China uh, in, in the last few years. But on, on simple um, economic weight terms alone, um, R- Russia and China really um, can' can't be compared. The, the size of the Russian economy, is, is pretty close to the size of the Australian economy. In fact, I think after several years of war, after Russia's appalling invasion of Ukraine, their economy is probably smaller than the Australian economy. China, by comparison, uh, you, you know, has an economy which on some measures is already larger than the United States, um, considerably poorer per capita, which is uh, also worth um, uh, noting. But China is, is, you know, a country 1.3 billion people. Um, let's call it the second largest uh, global economy. It's it's the number one trading partner of the majority of countries on the world. That puts it into a different league f- of uh, f- compared to Russia. Uh, and so China, I think, is number one really as as the problem for the democracies, uh, and maybe Russia num- number two, particularly because of Ukraine.
0: Do you, do you see some, uh, some problems for China with its, uh, the economic issues at the present time and also the decline, the fall in her population? Are, are these going to be restraining influences on China?
1: They, they may
0: not be restraining
1: influences. In fact, they, they may become uh, the very factors which pushes a, a more aggressive nationalist China in terms of its, uh, its international behaviour. But, but you raise an interesting point. I, I, I think um, in Australia, there is uh, almost an unquestioned assumption that somehow Chinese growth, economic growth is is unstoppable and going to continue into the future. I, I don't read it that way anymore. I, I think um, in an economic sense, we've already seen uh, perhaps pre-COVID peak China, um, and the China that we're going to be dealing with in the next decade is China that's actually on the decline. And, and there are a number of factors that point to that David, um, economically, uh, Chinese economic growth is slowing. Uh, it used to be said that, you know, 6% growth a year was what the Communist Party needed to deliver in order to satisfy the aspirations of the Chinese population. Realistically, now, I think China is perhaps more like 3%, 3% growth a year. Um, and inside that economy, th- th- there are serious problems emerging. A crisis in the housing sector, which uh, impacts the domestic savings of a very large uh, proportion of the Chinese population. That's, that's one problem. Um, uh, a banking sector, which seems to be carrying a huge volume of bad debt, um, a lot of state-owned industry, which is um, uh, no longer producing uh, what Chinese people want or what the world wants. Uh, and Xi Jinping seems to have, since he's been in power uh, since 2012, no, no real answer uh, to how to sort of get China, the Chinese economy back onto a high-growth path and by his mania of trying to control a lot of the Chinese private sector, the Chinese tech sector, in fact, he's I think he's damaging uh, the, risk, the, the, the prospect of Chinese economic growth. So there's problems with the economy. Um, and then just quickly, problems with demographics. Uh, you know, China is suffering from the consequences of the, the one child policy of uh, earlier generations that's now produced a mismatch between the male population and the female population. There's something like 30 million uh, young Chinese males that will probably never have a partner. Uh, you know that that creates, I think, a, a social problem inside the state. Um, and and so, um, far from the idea of unstoppable growth, what 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 we are actually dealing with um, is a China which is going to get old before it gets wealthy with the Communist Party struggling to know how to move the levers of economic power. Um, And then I think the question is, what does that mean from a strategic perspective? Well, there is a risk. um, In fact, I think it's being realised that what um, Xi Jinping is wanting to do is to to use a Paul Keating phrase, flick the switch to nationalism. Uh, And if they can't deliver economically for the Chinese people, at least they can sort of beat up a sense of nationalistic fervor. Uh, And there's two dimensions to that. One is to attack the West and to say that the the democracies, the United States in particular, is the source of China's international problems. Um, And the other is to sort of rile up a sense of nationalist fervor behind the idea of um, taking Taiwan. Um, As Xi Jinping describes it, reunification with Taiwan. And 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 it's worth just making the point for, for your audience, David, that, that Taiwan, the island of 23 million people, a, a very pleasant liberal democracy, has not for one day ever been under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. But nevertheless, there is a very strong, I, I would say, united Chinese perspective that control of Taiwan is the thing that will deliver what Xi Jinping calls the great China dream, a rejuvenated China sort of striding the world stage. And so my view would be, we need to be more worried about a China that's angry and on the decline, rather than a China which is growing uh, and sort of benefiting from global trade. I, either is a strategic challenge for us, but, but I think the China we're facing now is a China that's going to have to deal with a lot of internal problems. Um, and that could make them you know, less predictable uh, and more of a threat in a, in a strategic sense.
0: You, you see something perhaps like uh, Argentina and the Falklands, a dictator trying to stay in power by doing what he thinks will be popular. We've seen the movie
1: before, and of course, we know how it happens in in the Falklands as well. Um, There's another dimension to the ideology of Xi Jinping in particular, which I think is worth worth mentioning, and and that is every speech he's given since 2012 emphasises that the West is in decline, uh, in a sort of a moral decline, um, and and therefore um, weakening. Um, and and the East, uh, by which she of course means China, um, is is on on the rise and morally superior. This has constantly been a theme of how he he talks to his own nation about China's trajectory, and and so yes, I think this is this is um, a concern. Uh, And there's a type of nationalism in China, in part stoked by the Communist Party, but also just kind of like welling up from inside the the Chinese population, Um, which, if anything, is is a bit like the European nationalism that we saw prior to the First World War. Uh, um, and and uh, that, again, is something that, that needs to be dealt with internationally. How, how, how do the democracies deal with that in a way to try to deter China from that type of adventurous um, view uh, of its role in, in, in the Indo-Pacific?
0: Do you think, uh, to some extent, um, some of the American presidents are to blame for the rise of China in the sense that they seem to indulge the Chinese government, uh, when you look at Carter or Clinton in relation to trade, were they too indulgent in relation to the Chinese communists, do you think? I, I think
1: so. I, I, I think there's been, America has had a sort of a curious love affair <laughs> with China, uh, going going back decades and, and decades, but um, I think there was wild over-optimism really from the days of the Nixon-Kissinger opening on in imagining that all it was, all it was needed to sort of moderate the behaviour of the Communist Party was, was to make China more wealthy um, and to see China more integrated into an international trading system. Um, and so the bet was, um, you know, the deeper we engaged, the more they would become like us um and and we know that's simply not how it's how it's turned out um uh you know china th- th- there's, there's still a remarkable degree of what i would describe as marxist leninist ideology in chinese thinking and and that's not too surprising because it's a core part of their education system but what china has lost in terms of a marxist approach to um, the economy, it, it, it has strengthened in terms of a Leninist approach to r- running the country. And so China is less plural, not, not more. Um, the, the wealth that it's gained through engagement with the West has, has strengthened the, the dominance of the, of, of the, the Communist Party. Um, and so there is no sense in which China is, is becoming more like us. There's a parallel with, with Russia here too, uh, David. I mean, I think, you know, when the wall fell, there was a European view in particular that the more Europe engaged with Russia, the, 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 the more benign Russia would become. And, and there was a, sort of a 20-year period where precisely that that happened um, uh, except it failed, of course, uh, um, you know, uh, Ru- Russia is not communist, it's, it's more of a kleptocracy these days, but the <laughs> authoritarian aspects of, of, of the Soviet, um, system is, is still very much a feature of, of, of Vladimir Putin's rule. So, um, you know, uh, in- engagement does not equal um, a process where authoritarian regimes slowly become like us. So, you know, unlike uh, Francis uh, Fukuyama's 1990 book or um, the, uh, the End of History, uh, which everyone at least has, has a proceed in their mind of what, what it said, you know, F- F- Fukuyama argued that we were all going to become sort of social democracies. Uh, that was the successful model of government Well, that didn't turn out. Um, And so now we face, I think, a a new authoritarian challenge in the 2020s that's very much like the the one the world faced in in the 1930s.
0: How successful do you think the Chinese are in presenting the authoritarian model to third world countries as a a better model perhaps for them than uh, the Western model? more successful than we
1: have imagined. Um, and, and what I mean by that, <coughs> excuse me David, is, is that um, I think China has to some degree given up on the idea of coercing the, the, the established liberal democracies. Uh, they tried hard with Australia <coughs> and Australian governments pushed back. The same thing is happening now in europe and and the united states and, and so what china has done instead is it it has focused on um dealing with the third world where, where actually the the style of communist government is more congenial in some senses uh you know fewer questions about human rights fewer questions about process about how money is spent fewer questions about uh, elites corruptly benefiting from uh, the spread of money. Um, China is actually doing very well in Africa, in the Middle East, Latin America to some extent, Um, and and there is an emerging view, I think, in in developing countries that, you know, maybe there's some things about China and Russia which are, are better than um, Western support which comes with strings and expectations about governance and, the, and those sorts of things. And so this there... is how China is pitching its appeal into the developing world.
0: Yes. And if there are corrupt leaders, it's much it's easier for the communists to fund those corrupt leaders than for a Western government yes. who is subject to all sorts of constraints about doing that sort of thing. Absolutely. And so,
1: you know, we. What, what, you know, I'm bringing in Russia as well here, but, you know, why is Russia doing so well in Africa? Um, well, precisely because it can deal with corrupt elites and, um, and get away with it. And in the case of China, without getting specific with, with some countries, but you know, China has been able to move into the South Pacific with great success in the last half decade, because it's been able to identify individual members of island elites and pay them off. Um, and, you know, people in Australia are a little sensitive to, to say that, but frankly, that, that's what's happened. Um, and in a small island society, you, you might only have to pay off 50 or 60 people in the elites to really capture the entire system of government. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, that's what China's done. Um, so, so, you know, we, we have to given our geography and our neighbourhood, we have to factor that in. Uh, Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Thailand, Laos, you know, th- these are countries where China um, has got tremendous sway and influence, um, largely through not so much soft power, because there's not much that's attractive about the Chinese system, but money power. And money power talks in
0: many, many countries. Peter, you're... A very well-informed person, and uh, I think one of uh, one of your commands is over history. You 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 can teach us from the history of the past in relation to strategy, and I I, I think you can, for example, in relation to what happened in the Second World War. And I'm wondering whether you would like to bring up those maps, which you yes, David. Is. I know um,
1: you have a number of maps that you're able to call up here. Uh, um, And uh, I'll I'll let your uh, control room uh, sort of go to the first of those, which I think is uh, a sort of a contemporary map of the uh, the Indo-Pacific region. Um, I'm just waiting to see that uh, come up on the screen at the moment. And uh, so uh, what I I think we're looking at here is a map which shows a number of concentric circles uh, really coming from uh, the Chinese mainland, and um, this is my attempt, uh, David, to sort of summarise. I think how to think about how the Chinese think about a campaign, a military campaign, to take over Taiwan. What what do you need to do if you're if you're a if you're a Chinese defence planner and you're thinking about this task? What what do you need to do? And in simple terms, what I'd say is, well, think about this as some concentric circles you need to cut off Taiwan from the international community. And so that's what that first yellow circle represents, is sort of a blockade, which we've seen the Chinese military uh, achieve through exercising just last year, not long after Nancy Pelosi visited Taipei. Um, Use your ships and aircraft to sort of surround Taiwan in a wartime situation, cut the submarine cables which takes the internet uh, traffic uh, and uh, telephony traffic from Taiwan to the, to the rest of the world and isolate the island. That, that's sort of task number one of a Chinese military attack on Beijing. Secondly, there's, there's um, a, a wider um, sort of red circle there where where China needs to make sure um, in uh, prosecuting a successful military campaign against Taiwan that it keeps the forces of Japan and the forces of the United States as as far away from the island as as possible. Uh, And within that red circle, you've got Guam where there is a large American air force presence. Uh, You've got uh, the US Marines based at Okinawa You've got the uh, very considerable military capability of the Japanese self-defense forces and a little bit beyond the American Fifth Fleet. Um, China's military strategy, if it's going to successfully take over Taiwan, has to find a way to exclude those countries from shaping uh, uh, military operations around the, the Taiwanese island. And then finally, there's. Um, a larger circle, the black circle, which kind of pushes out into the deep ocean, Pacific, uh, as far down as uh, Northern Australia. And there, I think the, the the Chinese military objective is going to be, deny these areas to other powers. Um, uh, try, try to make the American task of getting to the Chinese mainland and to Taiwan as complicated. as it it possibly can be. And um, China is seeking to do that by things like, for example, um, establishing a treaty relationship on security with the Solomon Islands. Uh, Now, you may say the Solomon Islands is a long way from Taiwan, and and it is, but it's, it's a critical piece of strategic geography in terms of complicating the task of the Americans moving from uh, their uh, Indo-PACOM basin in uh, Hawaii uh, towards the Western Pacific. Um, now, um, that's my sort of shorthand attempt to say, right, this is what the shape of a Chinese military campaign might look like. What are, what are their different objectives? If we can go to the, the next map, which I think you've got uh, uh, available to, to put up on your screen, um, this is a, a map... Uh, labelled the the Far East and Pacific 1941. Uh, And it's actually produced uh, by the American West Point Military Academy, uh, uh, which is their officer training school for the the US uh, Army, uh, David, and and, uh, in fact has a, a wonderful set of online historical military maps. And what this map shows is the strategic objectives of um, the Japanese Imperial Army and Navy, as as they thought about their military objectives in the late 1930s, um, just, just before the start of the Pacific War. Um, and uh, what I think is interesting, David, is, um, y- you know, geography doesn't change. The Japanese had exactly um, a, a similar set of strategic objectives, um, starting with, how, how do we um, complicate the task of the United States in terms of getting its own military forces over to the, the Western Pacific? And so it's not, it's not um, coincidental that um, almost at the same time as Japan was attacking uh, the American fleet at Pearl Harbor, it, it was using the army, its army to drive uh, a sort of a lightning strike down through mainland Southeast Asia, sinking the, 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 the two major British fleet units out of Singapore uh, in the South China Sea and attacking um, uh, Papua New Guinea and the islands of Melanesia including, of course, Guadalcanal in, uh, uh, in the Solomon Islands, um, precisely with the same set of strategic objectives. Um, control approaches uh, uh, to the Japanese homeland In the case of uh, Southeast Asia, just as China wants, use Southeast Asia as a resource for um, uh, commodities uh, to strengthen your um, economic security. Uh, And and in the case of the islands around um, China, control those islands in order to protect your, your mainland. And so, David, the, the, I've probably gone on a bit too long about this, but really my, my point is to say, if you if you want to understand uh, contemporary Chinese military thinking, which is actually reflected in their open source journals, um, about um, how they think about their defense task, um, what, what people should do is read into the history of the Pacific War uh, to understand how the Japanese military thought about their task and objective. And, and you'll see, their thinking about the Pacific Islands, about Southeast Asia, uh, and about the approaches to their homelands um, is, is remarkably is remarkably the same. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll just make one final point before I stop talking, again, and, and that's to say, I, I hope to, to your listeners, this this kind of explains why we see such a a Chinese interest today in in the Pacific Islands. Um, You know, this is not about um, aid and development assistance. Uh, It's not about uh, uh, China interested in fish resources or hardwood resources from Melanesia. I mean, yes, they'll take those things, but fundamentally the Chinese see the Pacific as as the first line of defence against an American attempt to prevent Chinese aggression. Um, and of course that matters to Australia because um, uh, you know, when we had to deal with the the Japanese um, uh, expansion uh, in ni- 1941 and 42, we, we found ourselves fighting you know very much in our sort of not our backyard, our front our front yard, uh, with military operations in, in Papua New Guinea. Um, so history doesn't repeat itself, David, but it, it does rhyme. Uh, and, and I think the, the geography creates a very similar set of strategic challenges for China today as it did for the Japanese. Um, and not surprisingly, that's how the Chinese military thinks, as we can tell from their journals, um, and how they're now building their force to achieve those uh, those objectives. If if we get to the point that, that war. Um, is actually
0: breaks out. We've just uh, honoured the Battle of Australia, the Battle for Australia, and uh, I noticed that uh, in the map of the original Japanese intentions, it doesn't include Australia, uh, there was a feeling at the time in Australia that the Japanese were going to invade the country. You, you don't think that was in their serious plans? I, I think
1: it was it was well beyond the capacity of of their military, uh, uh, which was really stretched to its limits any, anyway by um, getting as as far as they got. But Japan certainly wanted to deny Australia as a as a as a platform for the United States to really take us out of the war uh, in, in ways which would um, re- reduce a strategic problem to, to, to their south. Um, and I, I think, um, in some ways, that it presents the the, the way China thinks about Australia today. Uh, you know, China's number one strategic objective in a military sense for Australia is to break our alliance relationship with the United States, um, to, to sort of render us neutral <laughs> in a way which they have actually quite effectively managed to to render New Zealand neutral. Um, And and so that's why, for example, China um, has been so publicly um, agitated about the AUKUS relationship that um, uh, was announced uh, by Scott Morrison um, almost exactly two years ago, a strengthening of defense cooperation with, with the US. Uh, because that runs counter to how China defines its strategic interests. They want us isolated and effectively neutral.
0: Just that map of uh, 1941, central to it is uh, Singapore. And it's always, I've often wondered about the fall of Singapore, whether per- Percival, the, the British general who surrendered, went against the very clear directions of Churchill not to surrender, but do you think he made a serious error in surrendering? Was it uh, Did he hmm. overestimate the Japanese forces? Could he have fought on? Gee, it's hard to see how that happened
1: after the loss of the two major fleet units from the Royal Navy. Um, and there, I think, um, you know, two two things really come into play. One was the tremendous speed with which the um, Japanese were able to succeed with their campaigns in Southeast Asia. I and mean, I, as I read the history now, Pearl Harbor is a remarkable story, but even more amazing is the speed with which the Japanese Imperial Army pushed all, all the way down to Singapore, basically within um, several months, two months. Um, um, and uh, we were shockingly unprepared for that, David. Our, our, um, our strategy simply was not um, built around the idea of major land um, campaigns on, on the peninsula. Then you get, of course, into the territory of, after that sort of horrible military setback, the failure of the British Singapore strategy, um, Churchill, I, I think, very reasonably had to say, and, and I, I don't think this could have been easy for him, but he had to say, look, we've got to put priority on the defense of our own homeland. Um, and therefore, the, the, what, what's left of British resources need to be devoted to that to that tactic, and the Pacific comes second. And of course, that was the view the Americans took as well, after Pearl Harbor drag, dragged them in. And so, you know, the shape of the Pacific War was, uh, a very fast lightning attack by Japan, a very successful attack which extended them out almost as far as their capacity, their military capacity, would let them go. And then and then a holding operation for a period of years whilst the Americans, you know, geared for um, uh, you know, operations in North Africa and, and Italy, and, and then uh, of course the Norm- Normandy landings, and then an American push uh, once Europe had largely been resolved. So it's always fun to sort of think count- counterfactually about uh, about history, but I I, I just don't know uh, when when once those two British ships were sunk that there really was a strategy to fight. a a more rearguard campaign. Um, Worth just noting also, I mean, Australia had, you know, pretty successful uh, sort of um, commando style operations in Timor and elsewhere for quite some time that sort of made the Japanese fight harder as they got into the uh, Indonesian archipelago. And as I think about the Solomon Islands, um, which again, I think is very important history for us to read given the current Solomon's relationship with China. It's it's worth remembering, um, Japan committed over 50,000 troops into Guadalcanal. Uh, It's just the the scale of fighting that took place there was astonishing. Um, Bougainville, there were 30,000 Japanese troops located. Um, uh, so, so this was you know you know something that, that slowed down america's capacity to gear for the attack on the on the on the japanese mainland um and, and it just goes to show how strategically important the central pacific and melanesian pacific is uh to any sort of thinking about conflict in in uh, in the asian region
0: it's interesting isn't it to consider japan once uh, an aggressive superpower I suppose. Now she's abandoned all of that and she's uh, almost purely an economic power with a declining population.
1: Well, um, I I guess I would say uh, two things. Never underestimate Japan's capacity to um, uh, uh, be a tough military opponent if it it chooses to be so. I very much want them to be on our side next next time around, uh, David. And and um, we we don't pay uh, much attention to what Japan's doing, but th- there's actually been um, in the last twelve months two big announcements of the the um, increase in defence spending uh, in Japan. And so, although Japan has what they call um, the self defence force, and although it does have quite Quite tight constitutional limits around the use of their military, um, because of the the threat that China is is presenting to to um, Japan's security. Japan has invested heavily in a way that Australia has not uh, in building its own defence capabilities, um, and Japan is going to be you know, a, a critical factor for deterrence. I, I think, in,
0: in coming years, regardless of what the US might might do. How important is AUKUS to our defence, do you think? I think it's a really important statement of what could be achieved if
1: um, uh, the three countries, Australia, Britain and the US, genuinely made changes to how we cooperate in defense industry and, and science and technology. And the way I would describe it is, as I understand it, AUKUS is a commitment to say, look, we're gonna pull those resources between the three countries together. Um, and, and to do that actually involves a lot of very detailed un- unpicking of rules that the three countries have put in place to kind of protect their industry bases and protect their science and technology in, in in the military area, but if we can achieve it, what we've done is to bring together, you know, three advanced, um, uh, you know, democracies of, of of different size, but but all considerable players, um, and a single um, defence science and technology and industrial base operated between the three would be a very powerful instrument, a good a good thing in in my view. We just have to deliver on it. Um, And and here, David, you know, uh, worth noting uh, today's the 7th of uh, September. We're we're literally about 10 days away from the second anniversary of the AUKUS announcement. Uh, And it's fair to start asking the question, what's been delivered? What have we done? You know, we don't yet have a base for our submarines announced for the East Coast. We don't have that that location. We, um, there was a whole area of technology other than submarines, identified for cooperation, hypersonic weapons, quantum computing, artificial intelligence, undersea technology. Well, what's happening in that area? I would like to now start to see some results. Um, so, so you know, I, I think AUKUS is really important as an as a statement of intent about what the countries intend to do. But 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 it's. Always, always delivery is the most important thing. And, and we're not yet really seeing m- much of that.
0: How important is India in the the defense of Australia, do you think? So I, I think
1: India is, um, We've been sort of banking on the emergence of Indian power for for quite some time now and and not really seeing it as as a real thing, particularly in East Asia. um, uh, India is, uh, from a military perspective, still largely focused on its own neighbours. You know, the Indian military is dominated by the army, The army still focuses largely on the threat from Pakistan, even though that is frankly a declining threat if you look at the economics between the two countries. Uh, The Indian Navy is is growing and becoming more powerful, but still very much a a sort of a literal Navy that's focused on the Indian Ocean region. So India has has promise, but uh, not yet quite there. I I think it's very useful that China continues useful from the perspective of a Western democracy that China continues to annoy India, continues to threaten India along the line of control in the in the Himalayas. Um, Just just this week, David, that China has uh, released a new map which uh, presents um, uh, claims over territory on the line of control. Uh, that India disputes. Uh, I I have no idea why China thinks it's in its interest to do these sorts of things, because all it does is get countries worried and and interested in cooperating against them. Uh, And of course, we have the Quad, uh, which is this new grouping that brings together India, Japan, the US and and Australia at the head of government level, at at the president, prime minister level, which has met um i think four or five times now Um, and i think is a very useful thing i I think it starts to um show a new alignment which again beijing does not does not like but it's worth saying in inside the quad you've really got australia japan and the us uh, which is a very close successful uh a tripartite um, relationship really an alliance in in all but name um, and then somewhere way behind that you have India which is um, still shaking off the um, the legacy of 60 or 70 years of non-aligned movement ideology um, that still rather drives the thinking inside the Indian um, foreign affairs establishment um, so uh yeah you know India I think is um Um, a positive country for the future, a a good bet for Australia, a good partner for Australia. When Australia talks about diversification, India should really be a very high priority, and and I think it is, uh, in terms of um, our relations. Uh, But, you know, India's not quite there yet. Uh, You know, 70% of their defence gear comes from Russia, for example, uh, David, and and I think India has probably looked at the Ukraine war and has been a little disappointed at how lousy some of that Russian defense equipment has turned out to be. But if we um, if we look ahead 10 years or so, I think India will be a much closer partner of the democracies. Um, so that's the sort of trajectory which I think it's locked onto now.
0: What do you think we should be doing over the next few years in relation to our own defense? Peter? Oh,
1: gee, it's, it's a hard one because um, uh, I, I think the first thing to say is, we've ridden on American coattails for decades. Um, and, and, you know, Australian governments, the, the Morrison government, the Albanese government, they sort of high five themselves at the, this tremendous success, so they claim of spending 2% of gross national product on Australian defense. Um, and what I'd say David, is the, the only reason we've been able to spend as little as that over the years is because we have an alliance relationship with the United States and we've let America carry the, the load of providing security in the indo-pacific more broadly. N- now um, successive American governments, um, Obama, Trump of course, even Biden have have said to all of their allies, you've got to do more. And I agree with that. I think that's the first thing. So we need to gear for a world where spending, you know, 3% of gross national product, 4% of gross national product, that's probably more a realistic expectation of what Australia should should be doing. Then, of course, there's the question of, well, how do, how do we spend it? What do we do with it? And, and um, you know, the, the the really distressing tale um of the last few years is that defense has made a series of pretty appalling uh, decisions about big equipment which have not been successful the uh the conventional submarine with france being the obvious uh, example um and, and so we need to think harder about what do we need to buy from overseas what can we produce domestically and how can we speed the system up so that we're delivering uh, military capability much more quickly than we, we are. Um, you know, if um, a lot of strategists, uh, myself included, think that um, f- for a variety of reasons, the big strategic problem we might face over a Chinese attack on Taiwan is not a decade away, it's probably more like 2024, 2025, that that sort of time frame, a lot of which has to do with Xi Jinping's personal situation. Um, Well, there's almost nothing Australia can do in terms of domestic defence production in that sort of time frame. And so even the AUKUS submarine, you know, the ones we're going to build are at least 15 years away. Well, that doesn't do much to alter the balance of power in in the mid-2020s. So it, it needs to be rethought, David, um, um, with the presumption being that, that 2% doesn't cut the mustard uh, from a spending perspective, given the, the very um, challenging region that, that uh, we are located in.
0: Well, it does look grim, doesn't it? We seem to be prepared to spend money on other things and our sense of priority does not seem to be such that there is a feeling that defense is the important thing and I would have thought should rank higher. I think that's, defense really was the, the essential reason I suspect that we federated, we formed one country and this is the, I would have thought, the primary obligation of the federal government but uh, so many right. other yeah, things right. seem to cloud their attention.
1: The the history is slightly depressing though, because um, I I would say every major conflict that we've been involved in, um, including the Boer War right at the Federation, um, was was a conflict that surprised us. Um, And we went Mm. into it under the head, uh, and then we ramped up spending very, very quickly. So the Boer War, the First World War, the Second World War, um, Korea, Vietnam, the Middle Eastern conflicts. Um, now we appear to be gearing to be surprised by what I sh- should surprise no one, which is that sooner or later an aggressive, uh, declining uh, Chinese Communist Party state is is going to present a military threat to the region. Um, and you know, it takes it takes a special kind of sophistication not to see this as a problem. But there are plenty of people in
0: Canberra who who, who seem to be in that. Uh, in that category, David, I'm I'm sorry to say. Well, Peter, that's a a grim message. Uh, You've been very generous with your time, and I must thank you very much for setting aside so much for us. And uh, I I just want to thank you so much for not only helping us understand this, but for all the work you are constantly doing. If anybody's doing anything about defence, it's certainly you. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure, David. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you. This is ADH TV. The program is Save the Nation. I'm David Flint. Uh, the program is produced by Charlie Noble. And until next time.